Welcome to the ASSP Safety Standards and Tech Pubs podcast, your source for expert insights on industry consensus standards and ASSP technical publications. I'm your host, Scott Fowler. Control of hazardous energy, or lockout-tagout, is consistently among OSHA's most cited violations. Having proper lockout-tagout procedures can help prevent worker exposure to hazardous energy, thereby minimizing the probability of injuries or fatalities. The ANSI ASSP A1044 standard establishes requirements for the control of energy sources for construction and demolition operations and offers guidance on planning for and implementing lockout-tagout procedures in those working environments. Here with me to discuss A1044 and the importance of energy control in construction and demolition is Michael Serpy. Michael is president of Safety First NA Incorporated, and he is also the chair of the ANSI ASSP A1044 subcommittee. Michael, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for inviting me, Scott. I think it's great that we're taking the opportunity to discuss this important standard. The A1044 standard control of energy sources, lockout tagout for construction and demolition operations, helps a lot of construction companies who are looking for some excellent guidance as to how to establish and implement an effective construction-based energy control program. One of the big reasons A1044 is such an important standard is that it fills a gap in existing federal worker safety regulations. Construction companies looking to establish an effective energy control program are greatly benefited by having a federal regulation that covers the specific subject of concern, in this case, energy control procedures, and a program for protecting construction workers from unexpected energy sources capable of causing serious injury, or worse, because they can usually use the standards language, provisions, and requirements to incorporate and build into their own policies and procedures. When no such regulations exist, as in the case of lockout-tagout for construction, construction companies are forced to fend for themselves, so to speak, to find ways to protect their people. In the case of lockout-tagout for construction, construction companies must look to other standard-setting organizations to fill the gap. The A1044 standard not only fills that gap, its specific content covering hazardous energy and construction raises awareness that there is even an issue in this area, and which might otherwise be completely overlooked until it's too late. In other words, becoming aware of the need for a lockout-tagout program for construction operations after a serious accident has occurred. The A10 subgroup, which writes the standards, is comprised of construction professionals who have a lot of experience addressing and managing construction-specific safety and health issues. A10 subgroup members bring a lot of expertise from different areas of construction to the standards they write. There's also a rigorous review process for the A10 standards, including standard updates every four years or so. And the A10 committee are therefore a great authority for construction safety, which can be relied on for accurate and correct information and guidance. In fact, the very nature of construction work makes it more likely that an employee could get hurt by unexpected or uncontrolled hazardous energy, more so than in general industry. Because of all the varied project and work environments which constitute construction work, workers may be working in the particular environment or around with equipment for the very first time, not at all like at a factory where the machines are stationary and employees see the same equipment over and over again in a more or less static environment. That's, that's a really good point and helps lay the groundwork for A1044. So with that framework in mind, uh, regular listeners of the show may remember our episodes about lockout, tagout, and the Z244 standard, but today we're talking specifically about controlling hazardous energy in construction and demolition, which is where A1044 comes in. So I thought we could start out by discussing some specific hazardous energy sources that workers may come across on a construction or demolition site, and also what is different about hazardous energy on construction and demolition sites 
compared to other work environments that necessitates it having its own standard? Those are both very good questions. To answer your first question, the energy sources can be wide and varied. We've already mentioned overhead power lines, but there are a lot of others too. Construction employees may be exposed to hazardous energy from an assortment of items, including all powered tools, machinery, equipment, vehicles, electrical conductors, pipelines, belts, drive shafts, and other devices that radiate, transfer, or are powered by an energy source. Common serious accidents in construction occur when workers get caught in conveyors and rotating shafts on equipment they are working on which have not been de-energized. Those construction-based energy control related accidents are a focus of federal agencies and are often mentioned in guidance and literature documents or accounts of accidents which they have investigated and on which they are reporting. Just for electrical hazards, duct banks can be located within buildings scheduled for demolition. Also, concrete encased underground electrical duct banks can be struck by construction excavation activities. What's different about these types of energy sources is that they are a different and special type of hazard which is particular to construction, which is this. These energies are present in the work environment, but they may not be energy sources controlling the equipment to be worked on or directly involved in the construction company's work activities. They may be energy sources such as power lines, which just happen to be in the vicinity of the construction work being performed. These kinds of energy sources may be overlooked or go completely unnoticed until they cause a serious accident or fatality. Also, different is the dynamic nature of construction where major activities are undertaken which may not have occurred previously and might never occur at that same location again. That in itself necessitates the need for a methodological approach uh, systematic um, to all construction activities where the worker may be exposed to unexpected energy. This is because they might not otherwise even be aware that the energy source is present in the vicinity and that there's a real possibility of harmful interaction with that energy. A simple and good example is overhead power lines. In Washington state, overhead power line fatal accidents were studied. Over a seven-year period, 94% of workers killed were not utility workers. Construction employees may not be trained to recognize the dangers of electrocution, which can occur if their bodies, equipment, tools, work materials, or vehicles come near to an overhead power line. But if those same companies had an energy control program that is implemented as an integral part of any work they perform, it would be much more likely that this type of hazardous energy would be identified and detected ahead of time and provisions put in place which would prevent any accidents from occurring. In one incident, a 38-year-old laborer working in the state of Washington was electrocuted when the jackhammer he was using struck an underground power line. The incident happened at a hospital parking lot where his employer was a subcontractor hired to install a stormwater drainage system. His employer was a site preparation contractor. The worker was an experienced laborer and a member of the Laborers International Union of North America. His job duties for the project included digging trenches and laying and connecting storm drain pipe. On the day of the incident, he and two other employees were digging trenches and installing storm drains. At the location they were digging, there was a buried duct bank which was in the way and conflicted with the plans for installing the storm drain. This duct bank contained three lines of PVC electrical conduit piping encased in concrete. Each line of the conduit piping contained four power cables carrying 7,200 volts each. In order to install the storm drain pipes to, to the necessary grade, the employees were using an excavator, breaker bar, and rivet buster type jackhammer to chip away at the duct bank concrete. The worker was in the trench chipping the duct bank's concrete when his rivet buster punctured the conduit and contacted the power line cable. He was electrocuted and died at the scene. 
If that company had had an energy control program, they likely would have assessed the work to be done, namely using the jackhammer in close proximity to the live 7200 volt conductors encased in PVC pipe, they would have recognized the potential for the jackhammer to come into contact with the power lines, and they might have ensured that the lines were de-energized ahead of time, or used another method to perform the work which would assure safety and proximity to those lines. If a construction company doing this type of work establishes written procedures for controlling these kinds of energy sources, they should include in those documents statements such as, in work areas where the exact location of underground electric power lines is unknown, you must not begin any activity which may bring employees into contact with those power lines until the power lines have been positively and unmistakably de-energized and grounded. And that's just a couple of examples of the types of unexpected electrical energy a worker might encounter on a construction site. There are a lot of other potential sources of electrical energy, in addition to the existing ones which are there already when they show up. The other types of hazardous energy which may be encountered on a construction site include hydraulic or pneumatic energy, pressurized fluids and gases, and mechanical energy. There are a lot of areas in construction where this standard will definitely help. As we mentioned, some of the sources of serious injuries on construction involve things like conveyor belts and rotating shafts, but another one is the disassembly of heavy equipment used for the project, such as mobile cranes where the boom must be disassembled when the work is completed. Those boom parts may be elevated, and in this case, the hazardous energy is gravity, when a suspended member suddenly falls as it's being disassembled. It's a, a lot of great examples, and, that, and a reminder of the types of things can happen if you don't do the the preparation the pre-planning and knowing your work site before before your workers are out there okay now getting into the meat of the a1044 standard and how safety professionals and workers can use it to address hazardous energy concerns the first section discusses that pre-planning your lockout tagout procedure so i'm very interested in what needs to happen during that pre-planning process to ensure that you've taken the right steps before the work even begins one of the biggest resources for construction industry success and profitability is the effective management of time. As they say, time is money. But safety takes time too, so you have a direct conflict right there. Therefore, you have to balance it out. Construction companies may not want to take the time to do effective pre-planning for areas involving hazardous energy. But if they don't, a serious accident can occur. And if that happens, that will usually throw profitability right out the window. Right. So responsible and smart construction companies know they have to include time for safety. Accidents usually do not happen due to fate or occur on purpose on the worker's part. They happen because of ineffective processes, inadequate procedures, poor planning, or lack of foresight. Workers usually don't have control over those or direct those elements. Those elements fall into the range of management's responsibilities. Pre-planning is squarely in management's corner. If an employee gets hurt, it's going to be management's responsibility. Therefore, one important consideration is establishing that time which will be allocated to pre-planning. So, for example, just getting all the principals in one room at one time for that pre-planning meeting in the first place can be a big challenge. Then, once you do that, you need folks in that room that have the expertise, experience, and forethought to go over all the details of the work including in the context of the work environment in which it will be performed and come up with effective energy control procedures. In other words, you need the principles to demonstrate leadership in the area of controlling hazardous energy. Pre-planning must include broad thinking about the energies present at the site, including what energies already present at the site when they show up to do the project. All those sources must be identified ahead of time. As we mentioned, 
Those existing hazardous energy sources include items such as overhead power lines and underground utilities. There, the first step is identifying what types of energy are already at the project location. Then, they have to come up with effective procedures to control the hazards of those energy sources. Once they come up with the procedures needed to protect workers for those existing sources of hazardous energy, they must train the workers to recognize the hazard and what procedures to follow which will effectively control the hazard and protect them. Finally, they have to allocate adequate resources to supervise the work to ensure that the procedures were understood and will be correctly followed. All of those elements should be covered in pre-planning. Then, there are energy sources the contractors will be using, such as temporary power. One energy control measure construction companies should use, while not an energy isolating device, are ground fault circuit interrupters provided and used for all temporary power. As most folks know, GFCIs will cut the power in the event that an energized equipment connected to it has a short circuit, such as when electrical current is flowing through a worker who is performing servicing and maintenance and where equipment that has not been de-energized ahead of time. GFCIs are not allowed to be used for energy isolation, but they can certainly supplement recognized energy control procedures, such as locking out circuit breakers, safely removing fuses, etc. But the next big element is establishing energy control procedures for the construction machines and equipment which will be used for the project and which may be serviced and maintained by the project employees during the course of the work. These can also be developed during pre-planning. Those employees involved with equipment should be trained to recognize the energy types available on the equipment, how big is that energy, which is known as the magnitude of the energy, and the means and methods which must be used to control the energy. Controlling the energy is going to include having locks, tags, and specific lockout hardware needed to correctly de-energize and secure the equipment so that it can be worked on safely. Mm -hmm. Those items should be obtained ahead of time during the planning phase of the project. Once all that is accomplished, then finally, how to verify the systems are de-energized and will remain de-energized for the duration of the work and use those verification procedures to ensure equipment is actually de-energized and isolated. About 10% of lockout accidents are due to failure to verify de-energization after an attempt has been made to lock out equipment. One problem is that some of these types of energy hazards may be poorly understood, such as high-pressure fluid injections of a construction mechanic may receive when he works on a hydraulic pressurized system or pressurized hydraulic lines, or an electrical capacitor which may still be energized after electrical has been locked out. These are examples of stored energy, which can be trickier to identify and control than active energy sources. If the system's not properly de-energized, then there is potential that a pressurized fluid may get injected into an employee's skin. When that happens, the worker must be trained to know to go straight to the hospital because the fluid will cause blood poisoning and often result in surgical amputation of the limb or portion of the limb where the injection occurred. So for that type of work, energy control procedures should include emergency medical procedures to be used in the event of an accident of this kind. However, it is important, particularly for construction, to remember that hazardous energy does not just occur during servicing and maintenance activities. It may be encountered during cleaning operations or during construction activities. Hazardous energy can also be present or occur during demolition operations, assembly operations, installation or adjusting activities, and also during inspection operations. So for construction, it's a lot more than just servicing and maintenance to worry right. about. In fact, Recognizing that all these other construction-based activities we just mentioned can also expose workers to unexpected hazardous energy sources, the newly updated 2020 draft of the A1044 standard, which should be released and available shortly, includes and lists all those additional construction activities we just mentioned in the revised section 2.20, which covers the definition of servicing and maintenance. 
and also the additional construction sources where hazardous energy is a consideration, for which we've updated the definition of energy sources found in Section 210. Incidentally, those particular updates were suggested by Mr. Ken Shorter from the American Society of Safety Professionals, and to whom we are grateful for the recommendation. Absolutely. So now that you've done the pre-planning, you're ready to implement your lockout tagger procedure, what do safety professionals need to do during that implementation process to ensure that what they've done during the pre-planning is carried out successfully? If pre-planning is done right, including broad thinking about what energy is already present at the site and all those potentially hazardous energy uh, sources have been identified, then plans for effective methods for controlling hazardous energy have been established and implemented. Implementation includes those controls and precautionary methods and procedures to be used and the equipment needed to apply them and must be communicated to the employees who will actually be performing the work. That means training. It's a good idea if those specific instructions are in the form of written step-by-step -step energy control procedures. Considerations could involve training elements such as toolbox talks or other focused hands-on or classroom training where the hazards are communicated to workers along with the precautions and procedures to be used and are gone over in detail. Then, finally, you must plan for adequate supervision to ensure the training was effective and understood and will be properly followed. Absolutely. Now, one particular area I thought our listeners would be interested in is, is Section 6, which discusses special considerations for lockout tagout on construction and demolition sites. So what are some special considerations that safety professionals may have to focus on, and how can they go about addressing those? Well, um, one area we focus on in Section 6 covers lockout tagout interruption for the purpose of testing energized equipment. At times during servicing and maintenance, it may become necessary to energize the equipment to test the effectiveness of the work being performed or for other reasons. What we say for those cases is, in situations where the energy isolating devices are locked or tagged and there is a need for testing or positioning of the equipment process, the following sequence shall apply. Number one, clear equipment, process of tools and materials. Two, clear personnel to a safe distance or location. Three, clear the control of locks, tags, according to the established procedure. Four, proceed with the testing or positioning. Five, de-energize all systems and relock and re-tag controls and then continue activities. Mm -hmm. These steps provide a framework for temporarily re-energizing equipment in a systematic way so that employees are safely positioned away from the equipment and the authorized employee is aware of the temporary re-energization occurring. And then steps to isolate the equipment again at the conclusion of the testing. Then we include that the testing is to be managed by a competent person. The training and experience of the competent person is critical to ensure that the testing is conducted safely and properly. Absolutely. Now I know documentation plays a critical role in lockout, tagout, and communicating with workers about when and why a piece of equipment has been locked out. Now, the standard offers an equipment-specific lockout, tagout procedure documentation form in the appendix to assist in this process. And I wonder if you could speak a little to the importance of documentation in lockout, tagout, and how this resource can help safety professionals keep workers safe from hazardous energy. Oh, yes. Um, that is very true. Energy control application can be technical, intricate, or complicated, and cannot usually be communicated effectively other than in writing. Yeah. That's why Section 3.1.1 of A1044, we require energy control procedures to be documented. In other words, when energy control procedures are in writing, the steps to energy control need to follow a specific order in order to ensure that the energy isolation proceeds in a systematic and logical sequence. 
The form we provide in Appendix A includes the framework for the steps of energy isolation to be followed and followed in that order in which they appear. And that can be an aid to construction companies on which to model or adapt their own written energy control procedures. Okay, great. Uh, anything else you'd like to add about A1044 or uh, controlling hazardous energy in construction and demolition? Well, I think that A1044 is an excellent standard and one that I'm proud to represent. I think it's a comprehensive in nature, but maintains and provides the flexibility so that it can be used effectively in a variety of construction work environments or situations. It provides a framework for a systematic approach to servicing and maintenance that helps ensure only trained and qualified personnel perform activities, that folks take the time to study and understand the equipment of the hazards identified, that control procedures are developed for effective de-energization, and that locks and tags are used for energy isolation. Especially for construction, we like the elements which provide for a pre-task briefing. It includes a process whereby which procedures are verified correct and that personnel involved are assessed and monitored and emphasizes increased awareness of hazardous energy and the need for controls. Okay, great. Thank you so much again for coming on, Michael. I hope our listeners will take a look at A1044 and how they can apply it at their organizations to help workers stay safe from hazardous energy at construction and demolition sites. So thank you again. Thank you, Scott. The pleasure's been all mine. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the ASSP Safety Standards and Tech Pubs podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect with us at ASSP.org and follow us on Twitter at ASSP Safety. We'll see you next time.